Hello, welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show fueled by Elfmark VDS Racing. On today's show, we're going to look back at the French Grand Prix at Le Mans. Steve English, David Emmett, Neil Morrison, Adam Wheeler on the show today. And uh, David, it was another weekend where obviously across all three classes, we had lots of action all the way. But this was a very tricky weekend, especially for the Moto3 and Moto2 riders, given the changeable conditions. Yeah, but uh, on the other hand, I suppose, I mean, the, the great thing about the weekend was we got uh, one wet race, one dry race and one uh, flag to flag race. So you got a little bit of everything. Um, but yeah, the, the conditions were tricky for everyone. It was just not really a a good weekend to be racing, apart from the fact that it's always a good racing weekend to be racing. Neil, obviously it was a tricky weekend for you as well because there was well over 100 crashes during the course of the weekend and it seemed that an awful lot of them were Moto2 and Moto3 free practice sessions. Yeah, I think we had 117 crashes in the the three Grand Prix categories before we even get to Moto E, where there was a load more there as well. Um, I think that's the third highest number that we've had in the modern era at any race. Um, so even by Le Mans standards, this was uh, an expensive weekend for the teams and for the manufacturers, um, yeah, repairing that carbon fiber. Um, and uh, as I'm sure we'll come into a bit later, you know, there's, you know, Le Mans is just uh, always such a, a hotbed for, for those kind of crashes, especially when it rains. Um, and uh, yeah, Moto 2, Moto 3 seem to pick up the brunt of it. And Adam, what did you make of the weekend? What was your big takeaway from us? I think, you know, the debate over whether Pedro Acosta is Mark Marquez uh, version 2.0 uh, continues pretty strongly, doesn't it? I mean, not only has he got a fierce world championship lead, but he manages to fall off after trying a somewhat experimental line into turn three. Uh, obviously, hadn't read the script when it came to Le Mans or, you know, maybe on the PlayStation, that corner is slightly easier than in real life. And, uh, you know, it was his first visit to the track, of course. And, uh, you know, still managed to pass a lot of people in, in crazy conditions and finish the race in the top 10. So uh, uh, the jury is very much still out, but very, very, you know, on the side of Acosta being a bit of a, a wonder kid. The jury's out on Pedro Acosta. He's got a 54-point lead, Adam. He's only got five Grand Prix. Yeah, he still extended his championship lead even after a really tough weekend. Listen, ask, uh, ask Fabio Quattararo about winning and heading a championship in the first phase of the season and then, you know, where he finishes at the end. And then uh, let's just uh, let's see if he does it. Well, I'll tell you what, I do happen to know there's one MotoGP commentator, I'm not going to name names on who it is, that put money on Pedro Costa at the start of the year and has already cashed out his bet because he, he didn't he didn't fancy taking on the risk for the full season, but he's already made a pretty penny off Pedro Acosta. So as far as he's concerned, he's already a world champion. So, you know, Acosta <laughs> keeping on this kind of form, no, you know, Steve, let's wait the, and see what happens. The moral of that message is what do commentators know? <laughs> <laughs> we know fuck all, mate. But uh, <laughs> I tell you what, this was, this was the first time where we really saw Pedro Acosta have that bit of difficulty as well, lad, during the race with the crash. Obviously, you know, you look at, everyone talks about Qatar 2 coming from pit lane, this, that and the other. There was no pressure on him in Qatar 2. There was pressure on him this weekend. This was a weekend where, you know, you could make a mistake, you could lose a lot of points, but instead he made a mistake and it was arguably all the other experienced riders that made bigger mistakes. I mean, aside from all the, you know, the attributes and, and the fast, fantastic things you can see around Acosta, there were two... But there's two kind of lovely, I don't know what word to describe it, things to, to chart, you know, in his learning. Because, you know, not only is he for the second race in a row, well, actually, you know, after Portugal, having to deal with 
getting the intricacies of a new track together and, you know, largely struggling through practice and qualification and, and burying himself far down on the grid, um, you know, and then making a, a decent recovery through the race. But then also you can see from the way he's riding that he is very much still learning his craft against, you know, some of the best opposition. And we can talk about, you know, the, the relative strength of Moto3 this year in 2021 compared to previous seasons. Um, you know, is Acosta a really a shining, unique talent or, you know, is, is his rivals on this in this particular season somewhat softer compared to maybe the Arbolinos or the Mears or whoever of, of the past in Moto3? But um, watching him, you know, you, you see him learning and you see him uh, visibly progressing and that's 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 a very fun one of the interesting things is i mean the the step from you know the cv moto 3 to uh world championship moto g uh, moto 3 is not that big because you know you're on more or less the same bike you're going to a lot of the same tracks so you don't have so much to learn um but this was a proper wet race. So, and I think, uh, I don't think that, uh, Acosta has had much experience in the wet because we didn't have very many wet races last year. I don't, I don't know about in the, in the CV. I don't think they had very many wet races. Uh, Red Bull rookies didn't have very many, um, uh, uh, wet sessions. So yeah, it was still something he needed to learn. It was a new experience for all of the rookies. It was, yeah. And, uh, you know, I kind of agree a little bit, Ad, that this maybe isn't the strongest Model 3 in some respects, but I also rate a couple of uh, Acosta's peers, uh, Xavi Artigas, uh, Isan Guevara, quite highly. Um, they were maybe even more impressive on what they did in uh, the CEV over the past couple of seasons. Um, yet you can see that they're, you know, they're not setting the world to light anywhere near to the degree that uh, Acosta is. Um, and this weekend, again, we saw... Um, I think his first session in the rain at Le Mans, uh, he was second fastest in the rain, um, was just, yeah, um, very impressive, qualified okay, a bit of a nightmare in qualifying, down in uh, 21st, by the second lap he was sixth, you know, so like, he, was, he was on course to go and catch the leaders, basically, when he did crash out, um, so for his first wet race in the World Championship of the track that he doesn't have any experience at before, I still account that as quite exceptional. Yeah, I think... Yeah, you know, and your point as well about the the strength of the field, Neil. Maybe a correct way to say it is that there are a lot of riders that are very raw. Um, you know, still very much in the learning phases. There's not too many that you can look at and think, well, you know, they're quite advanced on their development as Grand Prix riders. Perhaps that's the difference. I mean, Artigas undoubtedly has the speed, such as Alcoba as well. Uh, but then, you know, there's there's mistakes that are costing them dear and keeping them away from you know the kind of point hauls that Acosta's getting. John McPhee and Romano Fanati. Well, I think that's where you come into flawed riders rather than raw riders, because there's a reason why a lot of those riders have stayed in Moto3. You know, at the end of the day, the days of being able to stay in the junior classes or like especially the, the smallest class and being able to stay and spend your whole career there, they're long gone. So for a lot of riders like Fanati that had an opportunity to move on to a Moto2 bike, didn't quite work out for him, goes back to Moto3, Minyo. McPhee, you know, there's a lot of riders like that. And then of the young riders coming through, that's where they're raw. And that's where, like, you know, coming into the season, you know, for our preseason preview, we were talking in terms of, well, you've got Pedro Acosta, you've got Gavari, you've got Artigas. You know, these are three riders with a ton of talent. And they're all going in with decent teams. But it's been Acosta that's made the big step forward and he's been he's been superb. And I think that the easiest way to look at that as well is you compare him to his teammate. You know, Jamie Massey is a, a you know, a very well regarded rider that was expected to make a big step forward this year and instead he's been completely overshadowed by his teammate. 
Yeah, and making mistakes. I mean, it was he crashes out and can't get back on because the you know the bike is too damaged or whatever. But um, uh, his teammate gets off, uh, crashes. Uh, you know, Acosta crashes, gets back on, and still finishes. Uh, uh, what is it? Eighth, yeah, just behind Xavi Artigas, a second and a half behind Xavi Artigas. I mean, just to prove that we're not sort of completely talking out of our asses on this podcast. I mean, we, you know, some of us tipped John McPhee to be world champion this year by being able to use that experience. Darren Binder as well. Um, you know, and I think there was some rationale behind that because, you know, they're, like we mentioned, there's a lot of riders in the class who, who are just coming into Moto3 or they're, they're learning their way, they're, they're plowing their trade. Um, you know, to see McPhee in 20th in the world championship, I think with just 12 or 13 points is, is quite outstanding. Um, you know, and, and Darren Binder as well. I mean, this is a real kind of reverse of sort of the form book. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think for me, Ad, as well, like the Binder one especially was a big surprise because, we all did expect that he was going to be there or thereabouts all the way through the season. And he's been fast, but this crash the weekend, a few other incidents during the season, they all add up very quickly. And I think whenever you've got someone like Acosta that, you know, started the year off with four podiums, three wins, you know, there's no real margin for error then if you're making mistakes in those early season races. And I think that's where someone like Binder really needs to kick on now. Like, obviously, for the likes of McPhee, I think we saw at the weekend that bit of experience did make a big difference. He was able to keep a cool head, score some decent points when he had to. But it's also one of those ones that because he made so many mistakes, he couldn't really be aggressive and try and, you know, push himself on for a podium or keep himself in contention at the very sharp end because he's just you know he shot himself in the foot in the first four rounds i mean another point steve just to vary on that it's uh if you look at the world championship standings one small interesting thing is that you have four different brands i mean i know it's quite hollow to describe gas gas and husqvarna as you know it's a different brand but it's, it's not necessarily a different machine uh in the first four positions I mean, maybe it's more of a question for Neil, you know, knowing a bit more about the intricacies and, and the details of Moto3. But, um, you know, I find that kind of swing each year between KTM and Honda and, and how they manage to make progressions with, you know, the RC4 or, you know, or Honda's 250, uh, you know, what, what, how each one kind of gains superiority because Austrian-based machinery have won all the Grand Prix to date so far this season, haven't they? Yep, they have, yeah. Yeah, Honda hasn't won since... Uh uh, since the end of last year um and uh yeah i think normally it, it does come down to um you know which 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 of the best riders are, are on which machinery um but i would say like this year you would have to say there's a there's a bit of a balance because i think you know the, the strongest riders in the class acosta masia um garcia you know they're all on ktms or gas gas or whatever but then you know the likes of binder mcphee um alcoba rodrigo Mino, yeah, they're all Hondas as well, you know. So, um, uh, yeah, I would say that um, I think that, that both of the bikes are really, really closely matched at the moment. Um, you know, there's not really too much difference. We saw that last year, and there hasn't really been too much development in Moto3 um, o over the off-season. Um, but, yeah, at the moment, it just seems to be going in, in KTM's favour. And just in terms of that as well, Neil, obviously at the weekend we saw Sergio Garcia was able to win. That was on the gas gas bike. So like Adam said, you know, basically the same bike as the KTM. But it was great to be able to see him get his second win as well. This was a tricky race for him. He switched teams over the winter. He's gone to the Aspar team. He's from Valencia, like the team. And this one, you know, it was one of those wins where I think all of the paddock would have been quite happy. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. I think Kirsty has shown pretty good speed, um, pretty good potential uh, in the races so far. I mean, he was one of the guys that started with pit lane uh, with Acosta um, and actually made it up to the leading group in the uh, in that Doha GP. Um, just didn't quite have the uh, the ability to to make his way through the field like Acosta did. Um, but yeah, Acosta, um, sorry, Garcia's sort of been knocking on the door. Um, he was probably on for a really good finish in Jerez before he got along that penalty for exceeding track limits. He was fourth in the first race. Um, so yeah, he was a guy that I think you know we we, we expected to be up there um, towards the front. Um, he's been pretty quick on that bike from the from the get go, and it was a really calm, cool performance. Um, I think there was one mistake that he showed on lap thirteen, which allowed Philip Salas to get by him. But basically, Garcia responded immediately, and um, yeah, looked pretty pretty comfortable, able to to manage that gap um, to Salas behind. So yeah, it was a, it was a clever win, a, a strong win, and. Yeah, I kind of foresee Garcia going on a bit of a roll. I think he's second in the championship now, so good platform for him to build on for the rest of the year. It wasn't much of a surprise to see Garcia able to do that. He's obviously shown a lot of speed at different times in the past, but the other two riders on the podium, David, that was a surprise for everyone. Yeah, I mean, uh, Philip Salach is one of those riders who's been sort of theirs, there and thereabouts a few times that you really thought, okay, you know, th- there is definitely something there, but, uh, you know, to, to finally get it, um, just an impressive ride, both, both Salach and Rossi, um, uh, having a Rossi on the podium, uh, warmed the hearts of many, uh, of many, even if it was the wrong one. Um, it's, uh, it, I mean, there was just really, really mature, uh, smart, clever riding. I thought I was, it, it, it was impressive. It was just, you know, like keeping Ed while everyone else was going around, was going down around them. Um, they did well. I have to say, I'm, I'm really glad that the Moto3 race was running the wet. It was actually quite refreshing to see a Grand Prix where there wasn't eight riders or go in for podium spots on the last corner i mean that's the kind of excitement that you want on a weekly basis but i think you know it's like uh living in i don't know southern spain or something where it's sunny six and a half days out of seven a week uh you know when the, when a bit of rain comes along it's a change it's something different um and you like to see riders uh with you know using their skill um, rather than being closely pushed together by machinery or whatever else, or you know, there's there wasn't a, a slew of penalties or you know riders who had shone through practice and qualification being chucked to the back of the grid uh, just for a moment of slow riding during one session. Um, there was a chance for riders to really show what they could do in very difficult conditions. It was it was cool. It was cool to watch. And more importantly, Ed, there was a chance for you to have your press release written before the race even finished. Thanks, Neil. Yeah, you, you uncovered my real motivations uh, right away. <laughs> we know what you meant. <laughs> I, I do think the lads right on that as well, though, that it is nice whenever you get something a little bit different. It's why so many people like a flag-to-flag race in MotoGP. It's something where, you know, the rider's mentality comes into it an awful lot more. It's not just about, you know, being able to, especially in the Moto3 class, just being able to stay in the group and time your move to, to perfection. This is where it really comes down to who's able to adapt really well at any given moment. And I think that can be really refreshing at a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, next year we're going to see, or sorry, next week, the next race, we're going to see the same thing. We're back to back to normal because um, Mugello, because of its long straight, is uh, a, a prime slipstreaming territory. But it's still the scariest, sorry, Steve, it's still the scariest race on the calendar for Moto3, I think. I mean, going into Term 1, when there's usually 10 to 12 of them all you know, closely grouped, I still think somebody's going to go straight on or, you know, wipe out six six of the others. 
It's uh, it's fairly terrifying. Just before we move on from Moto3, I just want to ask you all a question as well about where you see things going in terms of that battle in second in the championship right now, because it is very close. We've got some riders, you know, a lot of experience, the likes of Mino. You've got obviously someone like Sergio Garcia now with a few years under his belt and this race win. I'm just wondering where you see that over the course of the next couple of rounds. But uh, for my side, I think we still have a hell of a lot to see from certain individuals. Like we've mentioned a couple of them, such as Binder, uh, Rodrigo, Foggia, um, you know, Sasaki, and especially Jaume Masia, uh, you know, had a pretty torrid time in France. I think a few of these guys are going to find form and uh, put some consistent results together that their experience, you know, should help them do. Uh, that's, that's, I think, something we'll see, you know, throughout the, the middle stretch of the season, if I had to put my money. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see Massia. Um, I think he's, his team were testing in Barcelona just after Le Mans, um, and he wasn't there um, because of uh, I think he injured his hand uh, in that crash. So it'll be interesting to see his physical condition for uh, Mugello. But yeah, definitely I agree with Ad. I think um, you know along with Garcia, I think the likes of uh, of Massia, Binder, McPhee um, are probably going to be the guys that you know if. If there is going to be a group of riders that, that sort of reel Acosta in, uh, you would have to imagine it would be from one of those guys. Um, but they just, for one reason or another, haven't had any kind of form of consistency so far this year. So, um, yeah, someone like McPhee really needs to build on that fourth place in, in, in Le Mans and, and, you know, put a run of, of podium finishes together um, because that's the only way he's going to get anywhere towards Acosta at the front. Yeah, um, same, not really much to add, except that, you know, the uh, at some point Acosta is going to have a DNF and, and, and score zero points, uh, and that's going to close the gap a little bit. And um, some of the other riders are going to start to put together a season. You're going to see, you know, people like Binder putting together a season, you know, maybe Alcoba coming through. Um, and then it'll look a little bit more like a normal uh, like a normal season but um yeah uh, and obviously massier so yeah it, i i think five races is is far too early there's still a long way to go in the championship as ever on the paddock pass podcast follow up show we've got michael laverty giving his thoughts on the moto 2 and moto 3 classes so let's hear from emlav on what he thought about the french grand prix the weather conditions played such a big part in le mans that actually for a change moto 3 was the probably the least exciting race of the day which is an unusual thing to say but Actually, nice to see what is a shy kid in Sergio Garcia. He's a, a seems like a a, a great talent. Um, quite phlegmatic, quite uh, unusual for a Latin rider. Really, ca- quite calm. But when he's on form on the bike, he looks uh, looks great. Led comfortably out front, pushed anytime Philip Salach attacked. Um, Sergio was able to respond. So, yeah, great second win for him in his Moto Three career. And. Uh, Nice to see two first-timers up in the podium with both Philip Salach and Ricardo Rossi. I was impressed with both guys and especially Rossi being able to respond late in the race when he was, I thought he was going to get caught napping by John McPhee. John was coming, pushing hard just a couple of laps from the end. It looked like he had the, the pace and at that point Rossi struggled a little bit but Ricardo was able to respond and set his fastest lap at the end of the race. So impressive, uh, good strong qualifying up in the front row of the grid. And now he's going to start believing in himself with that uh, BOE outride team that's almost an unusual place for them, qualifying front row, standing on the podium. But now after that kind of performance throughout the weekend, he'll uh, he'll begin to believe in his, his talent and his ability. And nice to see John McPhee getting some solid points on the board. Tricky conditions, you could see how tight and nervous he was riding in them early laps. Just when you have week on week, 
different incidents that are outside your control, it um it starts to kind of wear you down. Although John was trying to remain positive, you know that there was a slight nervousness in his riding in those early laps. So hopefully he can arrive to Mugello now and build on that and start to ride with the kind of fluid, um, unthinking nature he could do in those early rounds whenever he was fast in every single session. So yeah, John got his season kick-started. Obviously championship leader Pedro Acosta still making headlines even on a weekend when he only managed to finish eighth, but starting all the way back in 21st, all the way through to sixth in those early laps, pushing hard. Tipped off it, crashed in style, typically got his elbow under it, fought it, tried to keep it upright, but he had to give in. Quick pirouette round, got back on the bike, ultra quick, back to 21st again, and then managed to make his way through to 8th. So, yeah, good solid points for the the young man who's (laughs) exceeding all expectations this year. Brilliant stuff for him. As for Motor 2, I thought Motor 2 was a great race this week. Um, Ralph Fernandez again impresses his, his second win of the season. Closes in on Remy Gardner at the top of the points. So Remy probably didn't think pre-season that he would only have a one-point gap on his younger, less experienced rookie teammate. But Ralph just keeps impressing us. His ability to lead from the front of the race and how hard he could push on. It was dry track, slick tyres were the choice, no doubt, but it was there were still patches, you had to be careful. He was drifting it into the apex, he was riding with kind of that it's it looks it looks like a you know a MotoGP career awaits Raul. How he rides that big bike with more horsepower, definitely well suited. But Remy consistently there every time, leading the championship, not taking that victory yet, but he's not making any mistakes. Uh, Marco Bezecchi rounding out the podium again fast second visit to the podium this season but just missing in the later laps of the race and he seems to struggle to have the pace to match the uh both the aoktms they they've got a little bit of something that that kind of Bezeki can't respond to so returning home from his yellow he'd be looking to put that right fourth place man tony arbolino i thought breakthrough ride for him he's been showing potential listening to the the team talk about that and having to be patient knowing that it will come but uh, yeah, I think that was a, a breakthrough ride for him. And again, like uh, Ricardo Rossi in Moto3 this weekend, he'll have two weeks of the confidence you take from getting that first really strong result. So he's going to build from there, no doubt. Uh, good to see Bo Ben Schneider in fifth back on the pace and have an arm pump surgery right in those problems that, that hurt him in the early rounds of Qatar whenever he was really right up there battling for the podium. So yeah, Bo's had a, a strong start to his season. The, the actual the that group battle with uh, with Schroeder, Ayagura, Fabio Digi, Antonio Pearl Digi having to do the double long lap penalty didn't quite execute it perfectly over the the paint on on the entry. A little bit of a harsh penalty because he did penalise himself or try to on that first indiscretion. But um, obviously rules are the rules, and he had to go around there twice. So uh, yeah, eighth for for Digi on a day when he possibly feels he should have been in that podium battle. But um, yeah, did you look at strong on the Grassini machine? Obviously, one of the big talking points from Motor Two was the Sam Lowe's Chavi Vierge incident, and poor old Sam. It's just I can see both sides of the coin in that incident, and obviously a lot of people uh, coming down hard on Sam because of his speed and his ability to win the race if he didn't make any mistakes. So uh, people getting annoyed that he didn't stay calm and just accept solid points. So. It's hurt his championship at the moment. He's 23 points back, but that's not insurmountable, especially with the speed Sam has this season. So, um, yeah, looking at the crash itself, there are 
two sides to it. So uh, it is early laps. There are dump patches on the inside, but the gap was there. And nine times out of ten, the move Sam made would have worked. He'd have been down the inside. The rider on the outside would have had to give way a little bit, seen Sam coming in his peripheral and thought the better of it on the day you're going to have to give up the spot to stay in the race. And for me, Vierhey didn't. Vierhey would have seen Sam, he'd have seen him and he'd have heard him, he'd have knew he was being attacked, but he committed to the apex of the corner as if that rider to his inside wasn't there. So that's why I have to apportion equal blame to Chavi because Chavi leaning in there, committing to the apex as if that bike's not there means that there's going to be contact. And Sam tried to avoid that contact, squeezed the front brake a little bit harder. Unfortunately, it locked up and it ended up both riders in the gravel and game over for for both Sam and Chavi. At the time, you could see Sam was frustrated. He was aggrieved that Chavi had leaned in on him, just committed to the apex and, and from Sam's point of view, caused the crash. Yes, the majority of people onlookers see an incident like that and they always blame the aggressor so Sam trying to make that overtake then he cups the majority of the blame because it was him going down the inside on that damp line that caused the crash so yes I see the majority's perspective on it but for me I almost exonerate Sam because I've seen it so many times over the years I know Sam has put out a statement to say I made a mistake and uh, it's almost easier to do that in some ways, but I bet deep down Sam, Sam still feels like Chavi was probably more to blame than he was in that circumstance. And, and I can see his side of the argument very clearly. So yeah, Sam, keep your chin up. He'll be, you'll be bouncing back, no doubt, in Mugello and Catalonia. It is one of those recent incidents. Like I said, nine times out of 10, there'd have been no contact. Chavi would have given up the, the spot and you'd have both made it around the corner and lived to fight another lap. But uh, on the day, it just was two lines converging at the same point and it um, meant both guys ended up in the gravel. So, yeah, tough times. It is a racing incident, as the old Senna quote, if you don't go for a gap that's there, you're no longer a racer. And Sam was going for a gap, a perfectly legit one. And unfortunately, the, the line closed off. He tucked the front and down he went. So hard lines, but that's bike racing, especially at the top level in, in Moto2 and World Championship racing. As usual, some really interesting stuff there from MLAV talking about the two classes in the French Grand Prix. But we're going to move on now to start talking about the Moto2 class. And this was a really tricky race for these riders because, Neil, the track had dried out in a lot of places, but we still had a lot of wet patches off the line. So this was you know, a race where we saw an awful lot of crashes during the course of it. Yeah, but plenty of wet patches on the track, um, and I think we saw that with the, the number of, of, of podium contenders that crashed out in the uh, the first couple of laps. We had Aaron Connect crashing in the first lap, we had Augusto Fernandez, I think, fall out, Joe Roberts crashed at Shimano Buff, uh, then Sam Lowe's obviously uh, went down at Carriage Fair and uh, unfortunately took out Javi Vierge. Um and, you know, those were all guys that had, you know, podium potential, podium pace. Um, I think even in Lowe's case, the chance to maybe run with uh, Fernandez up at the front. So it was tricky. Um, and I think that is where basically Bezeki and Fernandez had the edge because they were able to get to the front. And um, well, in um, Fernandez's case, just be far enough in front of uh, Remy Gardner um, because Remy had a, a bit of a nightmare first lap. I think was pushed on to ninth, um, nearly got taken out at the first chicane. Um, and, you know, by the time Gardner got through the field and up to second, um, basically it worn out his tyres and Fernandez was just too far in front to, um, to, to catch. So another brilliant performance from Fernandez for pole position, second win in the class, the first rider in history to win two of his first five Moto2 races. I mean, there's a reason this guy is uh, being hyped and being spoken of um, as a MotoGP rider, possibly even next year. 
Yeah, I mean, Alicia Spargaro was praising him. They were talking about um, on the Thursday before the uh, before the race actually started. Um, Alicia was talking about young riders and uh, and about Fabio Di, Di Genantoni because obviously they're talking about who's going to come into MotoGP alongside um, him and maybe on the Grassini bike next year. Um, and it, he singled out Raul Fernandez, saying what he's doing is much more impressive than what Pedro Acosta has been doing because Acosta is riding basically the same bike he was riding last year whereas Raul Fernandez has, has moved up a class I think that's really it, it, it is a big step and it's a huge step probably the biggest step in Grand Prix racing from Moto3 to Moto2 just because all of a sudden you've got a lot more weight you've got you know tw twice the horsepower um, uh, a lot more weight a, a completely different uh, kind of riding you've got a uh, you can spin the rear with the with the power um, you know the braking is much more difficult it's, it's a it really is a very different discipline if we saw Fernandez step up, like it was a press release came up in a few weeks, um, you know, would we think that was premature? I mean, if from our, I mean, we've heard what Alesh thinks, but what about our opinions? I mean, I, I kind of think he would, he could do with having another year. Of course, unless he wins every other race, you know, in the next two months and, and is looking good for the championship, because then why would you stick around? Well, the one thing to remember as well is he's going to be 21 next year. So, you know, he's a guy with a lot of Moto3 experience. And we saw plenty of guys move up after only one year of Moto2 as well. Obviously, that was in the, the 600 era more than right now. But at the end of the day, if he moves up, it's in all likelihood on a KTM. And we've talked about it in the past about, you know, the Tactois seats. You know, if he was to replace Likawona, you would think of it as being a potential upgrade. So I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if it happened. I also wouldn't be surprised if KTM decided he needed another year of seasoning just because even though he's won these last two races, you're still waiting for that real moment whenever he's, you know, the fastest rider in the class or something like that. It's quite competitive in Moto2 at the minute. But I think, you know, maybe in a few rounds, you get a clearer picture of exactly where he sits. I think um, you look at the, the MotoGP riders, uh, the current ones that had one year in Moto2 and stepped up were kind of fast-tracked through that class. Um, you know, Vinales, Mir, um, they certainly didn't disgrace themselves in their first season of MotoGP. And in fact, you probably looked at it then and thought, ah, yeah, that was the right thing to do because it got them up to sort of race-winning speed and in Mir's case, championship-winning speed, uh, you know, a lot quicker than if they had uh, sat around and waited for, you know, the contract cycle to, to favor them to get a space in MotoGP. So... Uh, you know, what Fernandez is doing is seriously impressive. You know, a few races ago, I would have said, nah, it's, it's too soon. But what he's doing now, um, I mean, he's one point off the championship lead after five races. And yes, there's obviously going to be a lot more difficult tracks to go to. He mentioned Mugello because um, I think Mugello was a track that he only had one year of experience in Moto3. We didn't go there last year. Um so, you know, tough times ahead, tougher times ahead for, for Fernandez for sure, but this is quite an exceptional opening. Um and, and you know, he's a tall lad now. Um I think his stature would be would be the right one for a MotoGP machine. But it's uh I mean, as much as you're talking about ability, um, you know, and a hot young rider hot opportunity, I mean, you do have to wait for that door to open, don't you? I mean, do you if he was to take the second saddle with Aprilia, for example? Uh, you know, would that be a decent move for a young rider or, you know, I mean, undoubtedly a pretty improved in 2021 so far? I, I think it would be a, a good move. The Aprilia is obviously a very competitive package at the moment. Um, but Fernandez was explicit after the race and said, I, I'm going to do what KTM tell me to do. 
Um, he said that basically he feels two years in every Grand Prix class, at least two years, is, is beneficial. So he is very happy with his team, happy with his engineers, and, and just feels completely at home in Akiyo's setup at the moment. Um, but he said it depends on KTM. Um, if they want to take me to MotoGP, okay, fair enough. But, you know, if they want me to stay in Moto2, I'm more than happy to do that. So, um, yes, there was speculation linking him to other factories, but it does seem add, um, and perhaps you know why, uh, or one of the reasons why, it does seem that uh, he's more than happy to stay within KTM, whether that means another year of Moto2 in 2022 or being fast-tracked up to MotoGP. This is we're in a very different situation with the six hundreds and the uh, uh, and the triples because the electronics are much more co complicated than they were with the with the Honda six hundreds. Uh, there was a very uh, basic package there, um, so you really the only thing you learned in Moto two was bad habits. Um, in with the Triumph engines, with the uh, uh, Magneti Morelli electronics package, you learn much more about you know managing the bike, managing the electronics, understanding how the electronics affects the bike. So the, the, you don't lose as much by staying in the class by uh, uh, in for, for two years as you used to with the with the six hundred. So I think um, it's less of a risk and and the less of an advantage to move up. So I mean, like I'm easy. Uh, I'm easy either way. He can do whatever he likes. Uh, but I don't think he. W I don't think it would be bad for him to stay for another year. But I don't think. I think he is ready to move up to MotoGP if the opportunity presented itself. If you were a MotoGP team boss now, who would you take, Fernandez or Gardner? Gardner. Yeah, yeah, Why? I think, yeah, experience. I'd take Raul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, it's actually, it, it's a really interesting question because it is, uh, you know, like raw talent versus experience. Raul Fernandez looks like he has more raw talent than the, the Remy Gardner. Gardner's got a little bit more maturity. He's got more experience. He's got more of a standing, uh, understanding. So like, it looks like the ceiling might be higher on Fernandez. Um, but, uh, you know, Gardner is very much... Um, in the Australian mould of motorcycle races where you sort of think, oh, no, he might be all right. And then all of a sudden he gets on the bike that he needs and uh, really starts to blow people away. I think for me, like the like you said, David, I think the ceiling's probably higher with Raul, but the floor is probably higher with Remy because of the experience. So you're going to get a good safe pair of hands. But it depends on what seat you're actually offering these guys. Is it your fourth seat if it's KTM or is it let's put you on a factory bike in the factory team and I think that's what really defines then where are you willing to take your risk or what who you willing, what are you willing to do and that's where Moto2 is actually quite interesting right now because you look at Marco Bezzecchi a rider that we've all been waiting to get as GP opportunity and you look at his start to the season Neil and yeah he's third in the world championship he's had two podiums in the last two races but it's been as opening five races where Bezzecchi hasn't been the rider that everyone was expecting him to be coming into this season yeah, he hasn't been, but um, I think we mentioned maybe on the previous Model 2 show that he's not completely blown it. You know, he's put a consistent run of results together. He's had two podiums in the last two races. Yes, he's maybe been a little more disappointing than what we were expecting from him. Um, he's not been like the star name in the championship this year um, by quite some distance. Um, but I still think that, uh, yeah, there's there's plenty of opportunities for Bezeki to uh, to kind of stamp his authority on on how things go. Um, and yeah, that's another guy that you you, you expect to, to maybe step up, especially as it looks like um, VR46 are leaning towards um, Ducati machinery in 2022 in MotoGP. Um, you have to imagine, you know, Luca Marini will be on one of those bikes. Um, and, you know, Bezeki, I mean, that's a, that looks like a, another seat, 
you know, that could be his on the other side of the garage. Um, so yeah, that could be that could be interesting. Just to go back to Fernandez, I mean, it does seem that in terms of his like close circle and, and his personal manager, I mean, that might be an influence on him staying with KTM. Would that be right, Adam? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Fernandez brothers are managed by Hannes Kinnigadner, um, you know, son of Heinz. Uh, you know, obviously has got very close connections with Red Bull and, of course, KTM. So, you know, and also Fernandez uh, Raul, that is not Adrian, who's obviously new to Moto3 this season, is arguably the leading light of the KTM GP Academy, which is that kind of formalization of the the structure that ktm have even all the way through up through the northern talent cup um the rookies cup motor three and into motor two so you know at the moment with the form and the profile that he's getting fernandez is is a shining example um of a rider who's made those steps and is right in line for a grand prix seat so you'd say you know like a, a challenger to a boxing world title he he's next in line for the a tech three saddle and that's why i think ikalikuana who did very well to finish in the top 10 in Le Mans. And Danilo Petrucci, of course, they they have a bit more pressure there because it's not simply a case of KTM shopping around the MotoGP market for 2022 and who's available. It's more them looking what they've got in, in the in the food chain and thinking, right, you know, the guy that we, the Spaniard that we've bet on is, 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 flower, is flowering nicely and we're going we're gonna to move him up. But, you know, just to move on from that, I mean, I asked about, you know, who would you choose between Gardner and Fernandez? And, and just to carry on playing fantasy sort of team manager for a moment, if you look in the standings of Moto2, you've got Gardner and Fernandez, the Red Bull KTM, are your riders heading things? But then Bezeki, like we talked about, firmly entrenched in VR46. Then you go to Sam Lowe's, then you've got Digia, and then Joe Roberts. If you forget the kind of accepted maxim that a team manager is going to look for the fastest rider and the best results... Do you suddenly look towards Sam Lowe's or Joe Roberts, you know, or Remy Gardner? Because you've got an Australian, you've got a Brit, you've got an American there. You know, bringing Joe Roberts into MotoGP would guarantee you, I don't want to say prestige, but, you know, maybe more uh, international or wider scope of attention in terms of sponsors or at least coverage. I think for me, especially, let's look at Sam as an example, because, you know, there's a lot of talk. We need to have a British rider on the MotoGP grid. Sam is the ideal British rider to put on the MotoGP grid. But I think for a rider like him, he's not going to go unless it's for a bike that he can actually be competitive on because he'll he'll be aware that the opportunities for him are going to be limited after what happened with Aprilia. And you're not going to get the same level of patience that you might get if you were... You know, a 21-year-old like Raul Fernandez would be next year. You know, you'd guarantee Fernandez is going to get a multiple-year contract, opportunities to learn. Whereas for someone like Lowe's, you'd imagine it could be you know a one-year deal, and unless you're going on to a really good bike, that's a lot of risk to take on. So I'd imagine he's going to stay in Moto2 next year, stay with VDS, stay where he is, and try and keep building. It's like what we talked about pre-season, or what we've talked about at different times in the past. There's nothing wrong with being the established rider in the Moto2 class, the yardstick for which to compare all these different riders to. If you can beat you know, the rider that's established themselves in the class, you warrant an opportunity on another bike. I think someone like Joe Roberts is an interesting one because, Neil, this was another weekend where Joe had a lot of potential and crashed out of the race. And I think whenever you look at what Cameron Bobier was able to do, Bobier got faster and faster as the race progressed. Obviously, he had a crash as well. Looked like maybe one of those crashes were... You know, the a slightly cold tire or something like that during the course of mixed conditions race like this, it's very easy to happen. But he showed a lot of promise as well. And I think whenever you look at it, if your choice is between Joe Roberts and Cameron Bobier, you know, to be a MotoGP rider, you know, I'd be leaning towards Bobier given his experience. 
Yeah, but you know, if you look at the, the sort of speculation surrounding the paddock, I think um, you know Joe Roberts is the is the more likely candidate just because of his age and because he's more established in the in the Grand Prix the Grand Prix paddock. And you know, Roberts, I think you know should be winning Grand Prix this year. Um, he certainly was challenging for a Grand Prix win at uh, at Le Mans before he crashed out. Um, Bobier, I think that might take another year. You know. Um, what Bobier is doing at the moment is, is really impressive. I think I think it shows just the, the, the caliber of rider that that Cameron is. Um, that he's fighting for top sixes in his fifth race in in the Moto Two class. Um, but you know, yes, Roberts hasn't won races this year, um, but he's shown capabilities. Plus, from what you hear, yes, he he kind of turned down that Aprilia chance at the end of last year, but. Um, Aprilia still very much remain interested in in Joe. Um, obviously, got the uh, got American Red Bull deal this year, which is um, you know quite a big thing for an American athlete, and um, you know has been very very fast. Um, and, and as I said, you know you, I do expect Joe to to be kind of one of those regular podium contenders from here on. So um, yeah, I would say at this time, if you're if you're putting an American in the MotoGP, Roberts looks the more likely candidate. Roberts has another thing going for him, which is that uh, his parents are British. So you've got the UK angle, a bit like we had with John Hopkins. Uh, you know, you, it, it helps to sell it to BT Sport, for example. Uh, I mean, like Joe Roberts deserves it just on merit alone. He's a good enough rider, but he also has this. Um, uh, that you know, he's important for the US market. He's important for the UK, or he can be important. He can help with the UK market. So I think that's good. And I think exactly as Steve said about Sam Lowe's. I mean, Sam Lowe's is only going to go up uh, on a top top bike, and he's only going to get a top top bike if he just dominates. Um, uh, if he dominates the championship. He's also uh, got the right name, Dave. You know, uh, if you come into, if you're an American, you got a name like Roberts in Grand Prix race, and then you're already, you know, that's got to be half a second a lap. Um, I think you know, <laughs> just just one more point to make. It's my opinion. It's you know, it's partially informed, of course, but I think you know, for a lot of British uh, MotoGP fans who might be slightly frustrated as to why there are no riders in the Premier class, and and what can be done to kind of filter young talent into Grand Prix rather than say the Superbike route is to try and have something like the American racing team. You know, if there was a British racing team that concentrated on filtering British products into the Moto2 stage and that final preparatory step before MotoGP, then that's essentially what we need. Um, you know, if, if there's somebody listening to this with mega, you know, very, very deep pockets and, you know, wants to get involved and set up a Moto2 team because that's going to be the best chance that we have of, of getting younger riders into, you know, the, the Grand Prix setup and, and to that final step, I think. Yeah, and with when you look at the American racing team, um, it's not just the presence in Model Two. They've set up the American Racing Academy over in the states. Um, they've got the guy, the likes of John Hopkins, I think uh, Roger Hayden, uh, working as rider coaches um, to bring on certain young talents. I mean, Sean Dylan Kelly, who we've heard a lot about, we've actually seen him race once on the world stage in Model Two, is a member of that academy, and you have to imagine in one or two years he'll be riding for the American racing team in Model Two. Um, so yes, it's 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 not just the it's not just about having a team there. It's about having a network of young talents that you're managing and looking after that could come through if they show the they show the requisite uh, res skills and results and speed in the, in the national national team. And um, yeah, I think something like that would be massively beneficial to to UK racing.
Yeah, and Neil, you mentioned there about the potential riders to come through. This was actually a weekend where we saw quite a few breakthroughs as well. Emlav was mentioning it in his little clip about Tony Arbolino, but Bo Benschneider as well made a big step forward. It was another impressive ride by Ayagura as well to come away with, I think it was seventh place for Agura. You know, wet race, difficult conditions, and uh, or sorry, like a drying race, and difficult conditions off the line. So, you know, this was a weekend where you know a lot of riders made that step forward. Yep, yep, exactly. I think Agora has been really impressive from the from the second race. Um, to be honest, um, Fernandez as well, obviously uh, a rookie. Um, but yeah, Arbolino was the one that kind of surprised me because he had been so down and kind of sad and dejected after the the Spanish Grand Prix. He had a really tough time of it in Jerez. Just didn't understand. I was speaking to someone from the team over the weekend, and they were just saying the problem for Tony is. Ralph Fernandez. Suddenly, all the rookies that have stepped up from Moto Three are thinking, "Why am I not winning races?" Whereas that's not really normally how it goes in your first five or six Moto Two races in the, in the class. You know, that's so competitive. But Fernandez has kind of changed their expectations, and, and I think Tony was getting letting that get on top of him. Um, so yeah, he seemed to make a breakthrough on Saturday morning. We saw him really fast in kind of iffy conditions. I think he was one of the fastest guys, and then yeah, you, you managed to, to get up there and, and 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 ride with the ride with the fastest guys for for most of the race. Um, okay, he didn't really have an answer for uh, Gardner when Gardner came past, but um, he stuck in there, and I think fourth place is an exceptional result when you think of where he was in Hereth. Yeah, and obligatory uh, uh, Dutch shout out to Bo Bensnyder, my uh, my other nationality. He, he actually rode a really really good race, um, uh, very mature. Uh, his best result in Moto Two yet. Uh, the the cold helps him. He seems to struggle more in really hot conditions. Um, but when he can when he when he can get grip, then you know he's showing the talent which helped him in the Red Bull rookies. And just a week after his uh, arm pump surgery as well. Dave. Yeah, exactly. Neil was mentioning there about the changing expectations as well. We've changed our expectations on the Paddock Pass podcast this year. We've obviously got this show, the Moto2 and Moto3 follow-up show. We've got our regular show. We've got World Superbike shows. And on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, we've also got the Paddock Notes show during the course of a Grand Prix weekend. And this weekend, with it being the opening World Superbike round of the year, myself and Gordo will sit down, have a chat and uh, get everyone up to speed on what to expect in World Superbikes this year. So it's going to be another busy week on the Paddock Pass podcast. But uh, David, what about you? Is it going to be busy between now and Mijalo, or are you able to get back out on your bicycle? I, well, uh, the weather is absolutely abominable. So um, I'm going to be able to get out on my bicycle today, and then it'll be dodging um, dodging the rain for, a, uh, for, the, for the next few races, or for the next few days. Neil, the lockdowns are over in Barcelona. You got a, a holiday planned or anything special for the weekend? Yeah, holiday plan, Steve. Um, yes, um, we're supposed to be going to Asturias in the north of Spain um, for a bit of a, a bit of a jolly. Yeah, for three days. However, um, my girlfriend is currently sat at home in isolation because uh, her office has been struck down by an outbreak of COVID nineteen. So uh, it is in some doubt at the moment. Um, we will see how her COVID test goes today. Uh, Adam, don't worry. That is a non-refundable hotel, so you could just take that booking instead. <laughs> I wish Steve uh, we've got uh, football matches basketball matches to look forward to uh, a weekend off but I'll also be tinkering away to get the next issue of the magazine out next week because uh, it's the end of May so it's uh, coming up to the latest edition of On Track Off Road and um, you know if I put the question back on yourself the fact that you're sitting there in a very very swish red and white shirt means you're fully on superbike duty so um, we're grateful you could talk to us about Motor 2 and Motor 3 
yeah it's look, i'm looking forward to this weekend and the superbike season starting up you know we're used to you get to february and it's time to go go down to phillip island the start of the season it's quite strange that you know we're five rounds into the moto gp season before we kick off for superbikes so i'm really looking forward to catching up with gordo just because i haven't seen him since estoril last year so it'll be fun to hear how scotland's been what he's been up to and then get ourselves into the race weekend so it's it's going to be good i'm going to go for a scott redding win and i think a jonathan ray win and I think one of the Yamahas. So there you go. I'm going to go for three, diff- three different victories. There you go. Just to spread things out nicely and uh, have a good level start. I'll, I'll go, as we, as we sit here before wheels turned, I'll go with a Chaz win, a Scott Redding win and a Jonathan Ray win. What about Rinaldi? Didn't he win there last year? He did. Yeah, I'll go with Rinaldi. Rinaldi will win a, a race, I think. Chaz is going to do the double and Johnny Ray is going to win one. Okay, well, there's good variety here. We've thrown enough enough stuff at the wall for something to stick so one of us is going to be right in some way or another but uh, we'll be back as I said on the Paddock Pass podcast in a few days time with our preview for the Italian Grand Prix at Mugello so until then a big thank you from all of us for listening to today's show and a big thank you to everyone for supporting us on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast as well This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler David Emmett Steve English Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. All the guys going on slick tires. There was no other real option, I think, for for the race. But as you said, plenty of wet... wet, wet, Sorry. (laughs) 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 Sorry, Brian.